Um, you know that we've been going through, like I mentioned earlier this morning, uh, a series of sermons based off of uh, the values that we've uh, begun to prayerfully uh, adopt as a congregation. We were, before that though, in the book of 1 Corinthians, taking a look at um, what Paul had to say to that group of believers there in Corinth. Um, the, the main problem we were, were taking a look at that Paul seems to be trying to, to hone in on is that the culture surrounding the church had become, uh, had, had come to infest uh, in the lives of the believers there in the church. That there was uh, ultimately, because they were embracing the culture a little too readily, there was ultimately, uh, we described a lack of, uh, self-denial, lack of death to self. Uh, they didn't really uh, understand the gospel as they ought to have. And so that led to uh, a variety of sin issues, uh, a variety of doctrinal issues, of uh, problems with their belief system and their theology. Uh, and so Paul is setting out to address some of the major issues that he sees cropping up in the church, and at every juncture, uh, each time he addresses one of the problems, he answers it and shows how the, the gospel is the solution to each of those problems. And so we left off in chapter 4 with uh, the talk of how the church was disunited. They were breaking up into different factions and parties centered around certain leaders and said, well, th- well, this guy, he's the one that really has his theology right. He's the one that has the best teaching about who God is and about how to follow Christ. And Paul said, look, you guys and your following of these leaders are completely undermining the unity of the church. Today in chapter 5, though, we pick up with uh, a new theme. It's the same underlying problem that the, the saints there at the church were too readily embracing their culture uh, and failing to live and die to self. Um, and the problem we're going to see this morning is one of sexual immorality in church. And when we come to a question like that, I, I think in recent times we tend to define in particular, uh, sexual sin in the church as uh, maybe something a little bit elevated above other sins. And the amazing thing is, here in the passage, is that Paul doesn't spend nearly as much time addressing the individual committing the sin as he does addressing the church and their response to their sin. As I was studying this week, I came across a quote from a pastor who said that when Christians, or excuse me, what Christians do seldom shocks me. I've seen it all. What shocks me is how they sometimes react to what they've done. And I thought that was a really profound acknowledgement to say, look, we, we all have our own issues that Satan knows these points pressure points of weakness in our lives and it'll push us to fall and to sin in certain directions. And so by one token, sin in the lives of each one of us isn't as surprising as is our response at times to those sin issues. Because what you see here in 1 Corinthians 5, what we're going to see is that both the person and the church 
thought that their sin issue was a cause for rejoicing. And Paul says, you've got to be ashamed of yourself for that type of mentality. And so we're really looking this morning uh, to answer the question of what the church ought to do in response to these sin issues that are cropping up there within the church. And Paul really begins to address, address the topic of church discipline. And so the main question that I want to examine for our time this morning is, what is church discipline? And I'm going to do that in one of two ways as we walk through the passage. Uh, the first section is going to be in verses 1 through 5, where we'll take a look at the individual, at the person who's actually committing the sin, and how church discipline comes into play with the individual. And then the second thing we're going to do, Paul begins to move on in verses 6 through 13 to addressing the church. This is where he spends the majority of the time, and he gives them an outlay for what their attitude and mentality ought to be, and then how to actually practice gracefully and well church discipline. And so we're taking a look, like I said, in two different ways, first and foremost at the individual uh, and then at the church in response to the question, what is church discipline? And so to begin this morning, if you're not already in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, that's where we're going to begin. And we're going to read the first five verses together and then begin to unpack some of what Paul writes. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And if you notice there in that verse, Paul uses a present tense verb, a man has his father's wife. It's not that he committed one act of indiscretion with who commentators would say is probably his mother-in-law since he doesn't say Uh, the man's mother, but he says his father's wife, so it's probably his mother-in-law. But he says it in a present tense, not as if it were a one-time event in the past, but he's continuing to take his mother-in-law as if she were his wife. Paul writes in verse 2, And you, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Wouldn't it be better for you to be sorrowful about this? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so the first thing Paul is going to do is is take a look there in verses 1 through 5 at what needs to happen in the life of the person who's been found out to be in sin. Uh, And so the first thing, the first uh, category that we're looking at is that church discipline addresses individual sin. Church discipline addresses individual sin. And and you notice that Paul has a a couple of different strategies in, in engaging with the person who's Uh, been found out to be an unrepentant sinner and yet is calling themselves a Christian. And the first thing he does is he actually confronts the sinner. You see that in verses 1 and 2. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And, And I want us to notice that our sin, your sin, in particular sexual sin, is far more serious than you think. 
Because what Paul goes on to describe uh, is this step-by-step process of what ought to occur for someone found to be in unrepentant sin within the church and yet is calling themselves a brother or sister in Christ. So the first thing he does is he calls them out publicly. And, and, and you notice that he is somewhat gracious and that he doesn't use a particular name. And yet it's also true that, I mean, there's probably only one person in the church that's doing this sort of thing. So everybody is going to know exactly who they're talking about. And so you see Paul trying to balance this both sternness and graciousness hand in hand. And that ought to be the tenor with which we think about and frame church discipline amongst us as a formalized process. And so he he first moves on as he confronts the sin to to shame them publicly. He says, look, this isn't good. This is not even the type of thing that pagans would put up with. But it's also not something that your heritage, your spiritual heritage would allow for. Uh, Just as a a point of reference, if you guys want to look back in the Old Testament at, at some point as you reflect on the sermon, Leviticus 20.11 speaks about the individual Repercussions for someone to be found in this type of sin. Leviticus 20.11 describes how anyone who's found to be sleeping with their mother-in-law or any one of uh, these close relatives that isn't theirs is to be stoned and put to death by stoning. So not only will your culture, your immediate culture, Corinthians, not put up with this type of sin, But your own spiritual heritage won't allow for it. Now, Paul, of course, isn't condoning uh, going back to this sort of uh, Jewish law for the nation of Israel. Uh, But he's pointing out and describing how there ought to be a great deal of shame. Like, you, you ought to know better. This clearly can't be an issue. It's something you're boasting over. But the problem really is not just the sin itself, the specific manifestation of the sin, uh, it's rather how much these individuals in the church are reflecting the value of their culture. Like obviously he says that this person is doing something that not even their immediate culture would put up with, but the culture in Corinth was one of sexual liberty. That they would take freedoms and doing whatever their desires would lead them to do. And and I would argue that that's the environment that we find ourselves in, in our contemporary society, that sexuality is framed around freedom, that we're free as individuals to do what we want. And so in some ways you see that being pushed on the church, and I hope that... Uh, we will continue to stand firm in the scriptures and not allow, like the Corinthians did, culture to infiltrate our thinking and our theology. As we think about what uh, Paul's confrontation of sin means, uh, it's important to note the word that he uses there in chapter 5 in saying that there's actually reported uh, some type of sexual immorality among us, that Greek word there is porneia. And it's a bit of a a catch-all word that Paul uses in other places to describe how porneia, sexual immorality of any kind, isn't appropriate for Christians. 
And I mention that it's a catch-all word because as soon as you begin to define everything that porneia could encompass, humans, we all have this amazing tendency to figure out how to get outside the bounds of definitions. We find new and creative ways to transgress rules and step over boundaries. And so Paul uses this catch-all term to make a pretty clear description of what he's talking about, that there's uh, this incestual relationship occurring. Uh, And yet, we ought to consider the gravity that he uses uh, in delivering to them this sexual immorality word. That that should weigh heavily on our hearts, that sexual immorality of any kind isn't appropriate here in the church. There's something to be said about the way we use our phones and computers, the physical things that we have. There's something to be said about the battle that occurs within the mind. That sexual immorality of any kind, whatever platform it's occurring in, whether acted out physically, whether acted out digitally, whether acted out in the realm of the mind, is not appropriate to be found in the church. that our sin, in particular, our sexual sin, is far more serious than we think it is. But he also goes on there at the end of the passage to say, look, it's not just sexual sin that I'm calling believing, professing Christians to turn away and repent of. You see this in verse 11. He says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. And then he draws on another list right after this. Not just sexual immorality, but also greed. Or someone who is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Paul uses a pretty similar list, almost exactly the same in 1 Corinthians 6.10. Almost exactly the same list. He's putting together in a way that we so often fail to do these sins like greed and sexual immorality, where we might put one sin over the other on on a pedestal of egregiousness. Paul is saying, look, don't even associate, don't even eat with someone who calls themselves a brother or sister in Christ, and yet is not repenting of sexual immorality, of greed, of backtalking, of stealing from one another. These are issues that you have to address, church. But we also notice that it's ultimately an issue of sanctification. That if the church is allowing its culture to dictate the way it behaves, then what does that really say about the nature of God's refining in our lives? If, if part of the point of our sanctification is to look distinct and different from the world, to commend Christ by the uniqueness of our behavior, then what does it communicate to the world when we look no different from the world? How are they going to look at our lives that look pretty similar to their lives and say, well, why, why on earth would I want to give up my Sunday mornings to, to go and live the exact same way that I'm already living? Like it, it doesn't make sense. 
Like, are we the type of people that when we go to coffee shops, I know I've heard from so many of you, it's, you always hear people talking about other people when, when, when they're at coffee shops or when they're in public spaces. Like, that is 90% of the conversation you're going to overhear. It's not edifying. It's not building up. It's not positive. And so are we the type of people that engage in the same sort of conversations? Are we the type of people whose speech and language is seasoned with grace like Paul writes in Colossians 4? Uh, James writes, How on earth can we, on the one hand, praise God with our mouth and then go behind a brother's back and curse them? Do we look, do we sound different from the world? Our sanctification is here paramount in the context of what it means to be a holy congregation of people. Because each one of us is representing this body that we're a part of, but we're ultimately representing Christ. And so when our lives look no different than the world, how are we commending Christ? But Paul moves on. Not only does he confront the sin, in verses 3 through 5, he condemns it. Like he, he doesn't just stop it calling it out, but he renders a public verdict. And he says, Your sin is worthy of punishment. And as we think about the, the punishment, I, I want to define a, a few words and phrases. Look at verse 2. He says, You're arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who ha- has done this among you be removed from uh, among you. Are you arrogant? They're boasting. They're prideful. It means like we've already talked about that, that they're proud of their sin. They're not repenting of it. it. It's easy for us to get a little discouraged, I think, as we think about church discipline because we look at our own lives uh, and, we, and we know our own struggles. We know how we fail often with the same sins. But I would submit to you that there's a difference here in being arrogant about it and not repenting on the one hand and being humbled by your sin and trying to turn away. There, there, there will be times that you will continue to fall into sin. There are seasons in your life where sin seems like an insurmountable object. And that's when we need more than ever what we, what we sang this morning, to turn our eyes upon Jesus and to look full in His wonderful face so that the things of earth would grow dim in the light of His glory and grace. That those things lose their taste and lose their appeal as we turn to Christ and reflect on who He is. Or as we reflect on what He's done. But also verse 2 writes that the one who has done this thing should be removed from among you. He, uh, he defines that out a little more specifically. If you look at verse 9, Paul writes that I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually, immoral, uh, with sexually immoral people. And again, he writes in verse 11, I am now writing you not to associate. But he goes on at the very end of the verse, and he says, and not even to eat with such a one. And he concludes in verse 13 with this really strong word that's kind of an intensification of what he said in verse 3. He says, in, or excuse me, in verse 2, he says, remove this person from among you. But in verse 13, he says, purge the evil person from among you. Uh, It's this old-fashioned term that we don't really use a lot that uh, we maybe think about 
and the Catholic Church a little more, but he's describing excommunication, the breaking down, the removing of fellowship. He's saying, look, you've got to, if you've gone through the normal channels of trying to confront them in their sin and they still refuse to repent, eventually you're going to end up putting them out for the destruction, he writes, of their flesh. And Paul is describing when he writes there in verse 5, the destruction of the flesh, uh, this difference that he, that he has in his writing between spirit and flesh. Uh, it's a pretty common theme uh, in each of his letters in contrasting uh, an old order and a new order. The flesh is the old. The spirit is the new. Our life is defined formerly by our fleshly human desires. Our life now is defined by the new desires instilled in us by Christ. The spirit. The new life. And so when he writes in verse 5 that you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, he's not describing kicking him out so that he doesn't have a home and he gets eaten by wolves. He's describing a, a spiritual process whereby someone who has called themselves a Christian ought to be thrust out of fellowship with the church so that what is still remaining in them of their old life might be removed and that the new spiritual life that's already there in existence might be grown and magnified and ultimately that fellowship might be restored. It's this description of killing the old, harmful parts, and nourishing the new ones. We tend to think of this sort of separation of fellowship, the removing of someone because of a persistent sin issue, uh, as this harsh reality. And of course it is. Like He uses this destruction of the flesh language. It doesn't mean it's an easy process. It's difficult. It's agonizing. But the intent is that we, uh, if, if any one of us is ever caught up in unrepentant sin would be so aggrieved by the loss of fellowship that we understand just how grieving our sin is to God. And it's really interesting that we would see this sort of removal of fellowship here described as punishment. But how often do we treat removal of fellowship as if it's uh, a nourishing thing. Like, oh, I'm just going to take a break. don't feel like coming this morning. I mean, it, it's easy for every one of us. Sometimes we just don't want to come to church. Sometimes we don't want to wake up. Sometimes it feels like it's going to hurt more when we're hurting to be around other people. And yet what Paul writes is, removal of fellowship is for the destruction and the harm of an old way of living. It's not a good thing. It's seen as punishment here. Instead, fellowship with believers is seen as a life-giving, joy-filled interaction for our good and for God's glory. And so I would ask you to consider the fact that this is seen as a punishment. It's seen as something that isn't, it's not, I mean, it's not good for us to be apart from one another. Mm-hmm. So in those moments when you feel like I don't know if I want to come. Consider these verses. 
But I want to move on. Uh, we've, we've looked at verses 1 through 5 and Paul's response primarily to uh, the individual sinner. And take a look in verses 6 through 13 uh, at what Paul has to say to the church as a whole. And so this next section, we're thinking about how church discipline is an issue for the whole church. And it's interesting because that's where he ends up spilling more ink. Uh, I think if any one of us were writing this letter, we would probably spend a lot more time writing to the individual who's had this uh, egregious relationship with his mother-in-law. Right? That's, that's where we would think we should spend our time. But Paul says, no, 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 church, your response is almost worse than the individual sin itself. That you're actually putting up with it and boasting about it. And the whole theme of the, the book, uh, the letter to the Corinthians, is that when Paul sees uh, a sin or an issue cropping up in uh, the, life, uh, in the life of the Corinthian church, he, he's finding a gospel answer to that problem. And so that's what Paul is going to do here. As he highlights the problem and the deficiency that he sees in their thinking, he sweeps up behind it and appeals to the gospel. But the first thing he does, let's look and read verses 6 through 13. And, and examine how he first points out the problem before he offers a solution. Verse 6, Paul writes, You're boasting, plural verb, or excuse me, plural, plural noun there, your boasting is not good. Do you, plural, not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter, and this is apparently a previous letter he's making reference to. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world saying it would be impossible for you to disassociate yourselves from non-Christians who are guilty of these sins. I'm not concerned about you casting a verdict on those people. Let's stop treating the outside world like they're the inside world. Let's stop treating the unregenerate like they're new creations in Christ. We, we, We call them to repent, and yet we aren't the one, like Paul writes, to cast the deciding verdict. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a viler, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God is the one who judges those outside. Therefore... He says, purge the evil person from among you. So Paul moves on to addressing the church's response to being found to have individual sin amongst the members. And he does that, like I mentioned, first and foremost by highlighting the holes in their theology. 
He says, look, you're, you're putting up with sin. How could you possibly do that? He's, he's not only addressing the sinner and saying, look, the outside world doesn't put up with this. So why on earth would you think this is okay? But he's also talking to the church when he says that. Members of anyone's family who would do that sort of a thing wouldn't put up with a son who takes the mother-in-law. The culture would turn and look and say, what on earth are you doing? So why as the church are you putting up with this type of sin? He says, instead, you ought to be ashamed. And the problem with their theology that he's trying to highlight that you see occurring in these verses is that they're confusing their liberty in Christ with the law. They, they think that God's commands have now become, because of their salvation in Christ, just uh, another rule that they might or might not follow. That they have the freedom to pick and choose which regulations and laws to follow. And Paul says, look, sexuality isn't one of those issues. He's going to go on to describe a, a series of circumstances that deal with Christian liberty and freedoms. He says, but this isn't one of them. God makes it explicitly clear throughout the scriptures that sexuality is always a definitively defined issue. And the confusion that they're having about whether or not this is an issue of freedom or whether or not this is a black and white, cut and paste law issue is tantamount, he says, to living an old way of thinking where you actually think you're celebrating your freedom in Christ. You're actually living like dead people. You're actually living like the rest of the world. But he gracefully goes on to show a better way. He doesn't, he doesn't just point out a problem. He offers a solution. How tempting is that for us? It's so easy to be critical. It's so easy for me to look at problems in others. And, and, and just forget to offer a better way, to show a better way, to, to back it up as he does with what the gospel demonstrates. And he does that by describing the Passover. He uses a bit of an analogy here uh, of the Passover feast. And as you look back, uh, let's, let's read one more time where he uses this analogy, beginning in verse 6. He says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So uh, apparently at that time, it had become common in Jewish practice when you uh, thought about observing the Passover to remove any sort of leaven from your house. Not only were they not supposed to have leavened bread when they celebrated the Passover, it had become customary for uh, Jewish people to remove any sort of leaven from the house. And Paul is saying, look, just like that would occur, you've got to remove any old leaven from among you. You've got to remove any sort of old thinking, any old way of living from among you so that you might begin to celebrate the Passover. And he's not saying that in a Jewish way. He's saying it in an analogous way. He's saying, look, Christ has come and Christ is coming again. And so just like you already purged the old from you, use new unleavened bread and living rightly. He appeals to the gospel to say that, look, Christ 
has died for you. And therefore, in your acknowledgement and your profession of him, you are new unleavened bread. You are new creatures. So how could you possibly live like this? But he also says, look, Christ is coming. It's both a looking back analogy and a looking forward analogy. Just as uh, the original Passover uh, where they took the lamb, spread the blood over the lentils of their doorpost was a forward-looking reality. So this too is a forward-looking reality. He's saying, look, Christ is coming again. And when he comes, let's not let any of his churches have this pervasive sin be found among us. You are new, so act like it. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You really are new. So begin to act like it. But as Paul points out these problems and shows them a better way, he he demonstrates that when that doesn't work, look, there's a process to follow. And it's not one that he takes lightly or wants to follow uh, down this path in, but it's a necessary one at times. And and it's good for us to understand and to study uh, what church discipline ought to look like from a biblical template. And you see this occurring Uh, in not only this passage, but also in Matthew 18. This is where Jesus is um, talking to the disciples about sin in their midst, the same same sort of issue. So if you're looking with me, uh, I'm going to read just a few verses from Matthew 18, uh, verses 15, 16, and 17. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So Jesus starts out with a a one-on-one dialogue to help uh, the sinning brother or sister understand where they've fallen short, where they've transgressed God's law. And if he listens to you, you've gained a brother. Like You don't have to go any further. He's repented. He's turned away. But if he doesn't listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You you don't want this to be some sort of mock trial, uh, some sort of kangaroo court. Take two or three other people, gently continue to confront this person and say, look, there are other people that are agreeing with me that, that your actions don't line up with God's commands and scriptures. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to even the two or three, to them, tell it to the church. And if even then he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. He's describing the same exact process here. So on the one hand, you begin by just talking with one another. This ought to communicate the necessity of these sort of personal, deep, meaningful, and discipling relationships. That we're not just concerned about making friends, we're concerned about growing together. That when we see sin in one another's life, we, we graciously talk with one another. But then when brothers and sisters fail to heed the warning bring someone else along who has seen the evidence of the sin in another 
believer's life. And then finally, if, if someone refuses to turn away, then it becomes uh, a church-wide issue. It becomes uh, open to the public domain, and the church officially renders a verdict of stay or be removed. Mm-hmm. So Paul says, look, at the, this, this isn't where I want to go. This isn't ideal for the believer. What should be normal is that the Holy Spirit would render what it renders, that it would reveal to us, that it would convict the world of sin. But when that doesn't happen, sometimes He uses brothers and sisters to point out sin. And so His prayer is that it never gets to this point. And my prayer for us is that it never gets to this point if, if any one of us is found to be an unrepentant sin. Like, it, it's, it's easy to start this process and say, look, I, I'm graciously coming to you because I'm, I'm just concerned. I'm concerned that you're following a path that doesn't lead to life, that isn't in keeping with God's law. And I pray that in those moments, because we're, there's probably a time where each one of us is going to be found to be in sin that we didn't realize, that God would give us the humility and the grace to accept and then to repent and turn away and not to boast. Because he's not trying to be Debbie Downer in this passage and just describe bad news after bad news after bad news. Saying, look, the end goal is always that the believer would be restored from their pattern of sin and that the church would be benefited. You see that at the very end, let us, in verse 8, therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, that as sin is removed from among us, what's typical of the church is an eruption of joy and celebration, that the sin that so easily entangles now freezes up to do what we ought to do naturally and be a people of joy, a people of celebration and delight in what God has done for us. And so as we consider what it means uh, to formally put into practice uh, church discipline, know that it's a process that is one of uh, graciousness and patience and is not uh, put up to be the normal thing. Paul doesn't expect this to happen often. He doesn't delight in this taking place. I I certainly don't delight in having to think about uh, there being a time when this would take place and by God's grace I pray that it won't. But I want you to know that God has instilled in His church the authority to remove sin from among itself. Because God's design is that the church would be healthy and that by virtue of the church's health the gospel would be spread and people would come to faith. Ultimately, discipline is good for everyone involved. So this morning, as we consider Paul's words, I hope that it doesn't land on us like a sledgehammer, uh, but as a warning beforehand, as a warning to say, look, this isn't God's design for us. It's not, it's not good that we would be caught in unrepentant sin. It's not 
good for this to occur. And so just, just be aware that this is available to the church uh, so that we might celebrate the festival, so that we might celebrate Christ, so that we might be a people of joy. Let's pray.